Well, shall we turn to the good word of God, and we're going to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and we're going to read from verse 1. Thy hast touching the things offered unto idols, we know that we all have knowledge, knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. And if any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing yet as he ought to know. But if any man love God, the same is known of him. As concerning therefore the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is none other God but one. For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there, are be, as there be gods many and lords many, but to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. Draw your attention to verse 6. But to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. Well now, if you've been with us the last few weeks, you will know that the last two Sundays we have been looking at those wonderful verses in John's Gospel, chapter 1. On the first Sunday, we were thinking of John chapter 1 and verse 1. And may I just refresh your memory? We were thinking of our Lord's eternity. Because John says, in the beginning was the Word. And then we were thinking of our Lord's distinct person. And the Word was with God. Or more literally, the Word was face to face with God. And then we were thinking, thirdly, of our Lord's essential deity. And the Word was God. And we notice from the Greek, it's more strong. And God was the Word. And then last Sunday, we were looking at John chapter 1 and verse 14. And we noticed two things. We noticed, first of all, our Lord's incarnation. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then we finished by looking at our Lord's unique glory. John says, and we beheld his glory the glorious of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And what a very wonderful and precious time we had last Sunday evening, if you were here, as we were thinking of the Lord's incarnation. Dwelling not so much on the, the birth of our Lord, because according to the Bible, the birth itself was normal. 
but we were thinking of the Lord's conception in the womb of Mary, the Lord's mother. And we were suggesting ways in which that could have happened. And according to the feedback from last Sunday night, that got us all thinking. And I said things that people had never even thought of. And that's good. Because my purpose as a teacher of God's Word is not to do all the thinking for you. But to get you thinking in your own minds and in your own hearts. And we were, we were rejoicing that uh, even though we just can't fully understand how it happens, yet we do rejoice that it did happen. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then we looked at his new glory and we were thinking perhaps that John was thinking of that scene on the Mount of Transfiguration in which as the Lord was praying that he was transfigured and his face began to shine and as even his, his garment began to glisten. And we noticed that what happened on that occasion that was the, the deity that was within him was beginning to break forth through the veil of his humanity. And what a sight that must have been. Is there any wonder that Peter wanted to start a building program? Let's build three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. We beheld his glory. Now, dear friends, I trust that you've brought your thinking cap with you this evening. Because this subject tonight is going to be a wee bit more involved. And so I want you to try and follow it carefully as you can. Because having looked at those verses in John's Gospel, we find ourselves this evening on this Thought Sunday to consider one of the most wonderful, one of the most glorious subjects of all the Scriptures. We're going to speak this evening on the uniqueness of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a subject. What a theme. The uniqueness of our Lord Jesus Christ. And because we've dealt with those verses in John's Gospel, we find ourselves in the position to go another step and to consider his uniqueness. I took the trouble to look up the word unique in the Oxford Dictionary. And according to the Oxford Dictionary, when we speak of uniqueness, it means being one of a kind. Something that is in a class by itself. That's the meaning, according to the Oxford Dictionary, of the word unique and uniqueness. One of a kind. And then, of course, I discovered from the Oxford Dictionary that you cannot speak of degrees of uniqueness. And sometimes we find ourselves doing that, speaking of degrees of uniqueness. 
But uh, according to the Oxford Dictionary, you can't use adverbs to modify the word unique. You can't say it's a bit unique or greatly unique. A thing is either unique or it's not unique. You can't speak of degrees of uniqueness. So immediately, when we speak of the uniqueness of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are speaking of one of a kind. Someone who is in a class by himself. And the thought came to me with tremendous force that there is absolutely no one else either on earth or among in heaven that is like the Lord Jesus. He is unique. He stands in a class and a category by himself. Think of the millions in heaven. Think of the millions on earth who are redeemed. And uh, he stands out one and only. He is unique in his glorious person. To me, that is absolutely staggering. There's only one Lord Jesus Christ. Not two, not three. There's just one. And that is why I read from 1 Corinthians, notice what Paul says. He says, to us there is but one Lord Jesus Christ. What a Savior. What a Lord. And that's the subject for tonight. And I have to confess, dear friends, like in the previous Sundays, I can only take you so far. When I've taken you so far, I shall stop. And we shall just have to, as it were, worship him, praise him, and adore him. Yes, God has given us minds, he's given us intellects, but uh, they can only take us so far. And when that happens, we have to take our shoes off, and we have to bow in worship and praise and adoration to him. Because how can the finite comprehend the infinite? It can't be done. How can the creature comprehend the creator? It can't be done. And if Stanley Shaw could comprehend God, and I say this in all reverence, he's not much of a God. And to me, this is the glory of Christianity. We have someone that is wonderful, mysterious, profound. That's our God. That's our Savior. That's our friends. Now, I finished last Sunday night by saying that tonight we are going to consider... Four factors that are absolutely necessary in order to have a complete conception of the person of the Lord Jesus. Four important factors. And not one must be missing if we're going to try and understand 
his person. Now, what are these four factors? Well, here's the first one. That he was truly human. That's the first factor. He was truly human. I say that for this reason. That if you're familiar with early church history, you will of course know that many heresies arose over the person of the Lord Jesus. There were heresies that denied his deity. And they did not believe that he was God manifested in the flesh. But there were also heresies that called into question the reality of his humanity. And one heresy said, when I, he, he looked like a man. But he, was, he wasn't really a man. He just looked like a man. But he really wasn't a man. He didn't have true humanity. And therefore they rejected his humanity. Now when you go to the Bible, you find it gives every evidence that our Lord Jesus had a true humanity. That he was truly human. Let me mention one of the things. We saw last week, he was born just as we were born. He grew up, he knew what it was to be hungry, to be thirsty, and to be weary. He knew all the different emotions that we go through of love and joy and peace. And of course he knew suffering. And of course he eventually died on the cross on Calvary. Now these are things that are clearly taught in the Bible. And you can't read the New Testament without realizing that our Lord had a genuine, true humanity. It wasn't a make-believe. It was something that was genuine. It was true. He was man as God intended man to be. Not man today in a fallen state or no. But in every sense, he was a true man, with one exception. And that is, he was sinless. He thought no sin, he spoke no sin, he did no sin. He was sinless. But apart from his sinlessness, he had a true and genuine humanity. That's the first factor. And that's absolutely necessary when you're thinking of our Lord's wonderful person. He was truly human. Now here's the second factor. He was truly divine. This brings in his deity. Truly divine. Now let me just give you one or two examples. Uh, We know from the Bible that uh, immutability is an attribute of God. 
Uh, Malachi chapter 3, the Lord says, I am the Lord, I change not. Now you change, I change, the world changes, society changes, but God never changes. We speak of his immutability. He is not subject to change. You see, God cannot change for the better because he is already perfect. And being perfect, he will never change for the worst. Now, is that wonderful? We have someone who is immutable, not subject to change. We change, the world changes, but here is someone who doesn't change. Now here's what Hebrews 13 verse 8 says. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. And just as God is immutable in the Old Testament, so we find that our Lord Jesus, he's also immutable. He is not subject to change. You find him tomorrow as you found him today. And you find him next week or next month as you find him today. He's not subject to change. And then, take another, another characteristic. Do you remember those four men? They brought the paralytic man, the one who was sick of the palsy, and they let him down to the roof. And the Lord said to the man, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Now, there were some old scribes sitting in that uh, little gathering. And as soon as the Lord said that, ah, they began to grumble. They began to complain. They began to criticize. Who does he think he is? Who can forgive sins but God only? And dear friends, they were dead right. They had it on the nail. Who can forgive sins but God only? Now, it's no use you come to me afterwards and confess your sins. I can't forgive them. And it's no use going to Father O'Reilly, the priest. He can't forgive your sins. And it's no use going to the Pope in the Vatican City. He can't forgive your sins. There's only one person can forgive sins. And that's the prerogative of God himself. But you see, what the scribes didn't realize, that standing in front of them, was God manifested in the flesh, who had the authority to forgive that man his sins. Another attribute of deity with regard to the Lord Jesus. And you know, dear friends, we could spend the next hour thinking of the claims that the Lord made when he was here upon earth. He's either God or he's, he was a bad man to make such claims. He says, I'm the bread of life. If you come and eat of me, you'll never hunger again. I'm the water of life. If you come and drink of me, you'll never thirst. He says, I'm the way, the truth and the life. I'm the resurrection and the life. Who does he think he is making these claims? Now, what would you think of me? If I stood up and made those claims, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the resurrection, the life. 
you would think he's taken leave of his senses. It's time for the men the white coats to come along and take him away from this church. But dear friends, every claim the Lord Jesus made was genuine. He is the bread of life. He is the water of life. He is the way, the truth, the life. He is the resurrection and the life. He's all that he said he is. Truly human and also truly divine. Factor number two, and that's absolutely essential. Now then, here's where it gets a wee bit, a wee bit deeper. Try and follow me. Factor number three is this, that the human and divine were united in one person. Not two persons, not three persons, not four, but the humanity and the deity were united in one person. So that uh, as the people saw him walk the shores of Galilee, tread the streets of Jerusalem, they saw one person. And in that one person was true humanity and also true deity. There was no halo above his head, no bright light above him, no, no. To every, to every intents and purpose, he just looked like an ordinary man. But you see, there's the mystery. The human and divine were united in one person. I will get into deep water, friends. This is a deep mystery of the two in the one person. I take comfort in what the Apostle Paul said, you remember? He says, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. And my, if the Apostle Paul, with his mind, had to confess, great is the mystery of godliness, then how much more should we this evening, with lesser intellects, have to confess, yes, it is a mystery, a profound mystery of the humanity and the deity in the one person. Now then, here's the fourth factor. And this goes a wee bit deeper. The two natures in the one person were not mingled or confounded. You got that? The two natures in the one person were not mingled and they were not confounded. They didn't mingle together to produce a third nature, although they were separate. They didn't mingle together and they weren't confounded. Now that means in practice that the deity was never humanized and the humanity was never deified. What a mystery that was. 
the, the two natures, woman and divine, in one person, and yet they, they, they were never mingled, and they were never confounded. And when you read the Gospels, dear friends, you have to distinguish at times which is in the forefront his humanity or his deity. For example, in John chapter 4, it says, Jesus being wearied with his journey, sat on the well. There's an evidence of his humanity. He was weary and he sat on Jacob's well. Ah, but go to Isaiah chapter 40 and what do you read? It speaks of the Lord who is never weary. God is never tired. God is never wearied. But you see, in John's Gospel, it's his, it's his humanity that was weary and tired, not his deity. And then do you remember when the Lord's speaking about the second advent with regard to eschatology? Uh, he says, That day and that hour knoweth no man nor the Son. Now, what's the Lord talking about here? Does the Son not know? Well, that's what the Lord said. That's not my words. That's His words. You see, in His humanity, He did not have omniscience, which is all knowledge. That is an attribute of deity. But you see, in His humanity, He didn't have the attribute of omniscience. So, from the reference is as to His humanity. His limited understanding. It was not revealed to him the day or the hour. So you see, you distinguish between his humanity and his deity as you move in the Gospels. Now that very briefly, friends, are the four factors that are absolutely necessary if we're going to embrace a true conception of the person of our Lord. He was truly human, truly divine, and they were both united in one person, and the two natures never mingled, and they were never confounded. And you'll find that every heresy concerning the person of Jesus Christ, it falters in one of these factors. Take the Jehovah's Witnesses, they've come to your door, they've come to my door. Where do they fall down? They deny his deity. Make no mistake about it. They deny his deity. To them, he was the highest of all Jehovah's creation. That's the old words, verbatim. The highest of all Jehovah's creation. In other words, a creature. So if you're worshipping Jesus, you are worshipping a creature according to the Jehovah's Witnesses. And they have the audacity to translate John chapter 1 in verse 1 in their New World translation. And the word was a God. That is a faulty, a faulty translation because the original Greek language does not have the indefinite article. 
It has the definite article, but not the indefinite article. And yet they have said, a God. So what they really believe is, a big God, Jehovah. And they a small God, Jesus. What utter rubbish, you see, they deny his deity. Some of the early heretics, they just thought, when I, he, he looked human, but he really wasn't human. Just make belief. They fall short in the first one. His true humanity. My friends, here's the danger of what we've been thinking about this evening. <coughs> it's who kind of go from this meeting to be doctrinally sound, orthodox, with regard to this person. And we should be that, by all means. And we stop there. That is very sad. Because the Bible teaches that this wonderful person is someone that we can get to know and love and worship and serve every day we live. We notice from Philippians chapter 3 that that was Paul's passion. Do you remember? He says that I may know him. And the power of his resurrection. The followers of Islam. They cannot have a relationship with the prophet Muhammad. Because he's dead. And the followers of Buddhism. They can't have a relationship with Buddha. Because he's dead. And we can hardly wait to Easter Sunday. In which we shall be rejoicing that our Lord Jesus. Yes, he was crucified. He was buried. But hallelujah, he rose again the third day. And he said to John of the Isle of Patmos. John, I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death. And they're dangling at his golden girdle. And here's the great truth, friends. We can have a relationship with this wonderful, lovely, precious, majestic Savior, the Lord Jesus. We can get to know him. We can scale heights. We can plumb depths. We can explore the length, the breadth, the depth, the height. And we shall never, 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 never come to the end. Not even in eternity. We should never be able to say in eternity, well, that's it. I've reached it. Oh, no. To me, that's what the glories of heaven. We shall never come to an end. We get to one vista, and then we we'll say another vista. We get there, another vista. Because, you see, even in eternity, we shall still, we shall still be finite. And how can the finite comprehend the infinite and be done? Let me mention something that that godly man, Dr. F. B. Meyer, says. This is tremendous. He says, in all true Christians, Jesus is present. In some, he is prominent. In others, he is preeminent. It's not lovely. You see, as Christians, he's present. He's within us. We love him. He's present. But then, 
to some of God's people, Jesus is not just present, he's prominent. And then sad to say to very few Christians, he is preeminence. They tell me, what do you fit in today, dear friends? Is he just present in your life? Is he prominent? Or is he preeminent? Only you can answer that. Only I can answer it. I trust you have advanced from being present and you see him as prominent and you see him preeminent. Because it pleased the Father, the Bible says, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Then, that's very interesting because the word preeminence only appears twice in the Bible. I wonder could you tell me where they are? Nobody's taking the, the challenge up. Well, I've already referred to it in Colossians. Here's the first reference. It pleased the Father that in him should all the fullness dwell the Godhead bodily. And it said that in all things he might have the preeminence. It's not wonderful. He's the center of heaven's attraction this evening. Forget about the pearly gates. Forget about the jasper walls. Forget about the golden streets. The center of heaven's attraction is the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. But it also appears in the little epistle of John, the third epistle. And it concerns a character by the name of Diapathes. And John says, I wrote to the church, but this character, Diapathes, he wouldn't receive us because he loved to have the preeminence. That's the second time it appears. Now here's the lesson, friends. Either you are preeminent, or he is. It's one or the other. If you're preeminent, the Lord's not. And if the Lord's preeminent, you're not. But you see, Diapathies, that character, and you know you have them in every church, and I have passed with five or six churches over the years. You have them in every church. Characters, and they love to have the preeminence. Everything has to center around them. And if they're not in the central place, they're not interested. Oh, how sad, how sad that is. They want to be the preeminent one. But God has ordained that his son will be the preeminent one. So there's the four factors, dear friends, when we think of the uniqueness of our wonderful Lord. And I do trust that these studies, the last three Sundays, including the night, have been help to you as we have thought together of this wonderful, this glorious person of the Lord Jesus, your Saviour and my Saviour. And as we sang tonight those lovely hymns, here's the good news, tremendous news, that one day, one day, 
we are going to see him. And we're going to be with him for the countless ages of eternity. Not only see him and be with him, but we're going to be like him. Replicas of his wonderful person. I love how, what John Newton puts it in his great hymn, Amazing Grace, the last verse. When we have been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we have no less dared to sing his grace than when it's first we thought that. And dear friends, we'll be there by his grace because he loved us. Went to that old bloodstained cross in Calvary's hill, died for us, was buried, and rose again the third day, and we are find ourselves in him. In him. I love the words of the old hymn which says, Not have I gotten but what I received. Grace have bestowed it since I have believed. Boasted, excluded, pride I abase. I'm only a sinner, saved by grace. This is my story, to God be the glory. I'm only a sinner, saved by grace. I referred to John Newton just a few minutes ago, and John Newton was a great character. He was a former blasphemer, former drunkard, got wonderfully and gloriously saved, and wrote that lovely hymn, Amazing Grace Because of His Conversion. And uh, as you know, dear friends, uh, as you get older, uh, old age never comes alone. Uh, we soon discover that we've got to go to the opticians. The old eyesight is not as good as it used to be, and we've got to go to the optician and get uh, glasses. And then, of course, we find that the hearing is not good as it used to be. What did you say? You're getting deaf, and you've got to go, and you've got to get a hearing aid. Maybe not one, maybe two hearing aids. And then, of course, not just the sight, not just the hearing, but sometimes the old memory begins to go. You see that wee woman coming along the street, and you think, what's her name? what's her name she knows your name what's her name and you're getting the conversation and you're trying to think what's her name and you mention name and nine times out of ten it's a wrong one the old memory I do a lot of visitation and sometimes I keep old people going and I say well I, do you know who I am just keep them going you see old people oh yes we know who you are the old memory and of course that happened with John Newton and he, the congregation will begin to notice it because John Newton was forgetting things and that's bad for a preacher when you begin to forget things and he's beginning to repeat himself and the congregation will, will begin to notice it and they said Mr. Newton we love you as a minister of this church but uh, you're forgetting things uh, and you're repeating yourself now here's what John Newton said. He says, yes, my dears, I am getting old. And my old memory's not as good as it used to be. 
But he says there's two things I could never forget. One, I'm a great sinner. Two, Jesus Christ is a great saviour. He could never repeat, he could never forget those things. I'm a great sinner. But Jesus Christ is a great sinner. A great, a great saviour. <laughs> Uh, dear friend, the eyesight goes, the hearing goes, the memory goes, maybe dementia comes. But uh, remember, Jesus Christ is a great uh, Saviour. But the Lord help us to, uh, to get to know this lovely person, get to love him, to serve him, leave this church with a determination that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and you know friend when Paul said that did you know he was a Christian for over 30 years over 30 years and yet after 30 years he said that I may know him we almost say Paul wait a minute wait a minute what are you talking about after 30 years surely you've known everything about him oh no friends oh no that may apply to mere mortals but not to the Lord himself that I may know him.